welcome to this episode of Battling Business with me, Chris Kitchener. And me, Gareth Tennant. And in this podcast, we're hoping to explore ideas and concepts around teams and teamwork, leaders and leadership, and all things in between. It's a discussion between a former Royal Marines officer, a product manager from all of business, and the occasional guest, comparing and contrasting our experiences as we attempt to work out what makes teams, leaders, and businesses tick. And this week, Gareth, I think, uh, well, I think, I know, we have a guest. Uh, Gareth, would you like to tell us who is joining us today? We are joined by Paul Armstrong. So Paul is a leading strategist, author, and speaker on all things technology, disruption, innovation, social change, consumer trends. Uh, he runs the technology advisory company Hereforth. Is quite often uh, a trusted source that news agents uh, and outlets go to for industry comment on all things futures. He is the author of the book Disruptive Technologies, which is a very, very good book about effects of technology on the future of business. And he's the founder of the technology conference, PBD, Technology Behaviour Data, which is where we first met, isn't it, Paul? Yeah, so, it is. Thank you for that sterling introduction. I appreciate it. <laughs> welcome to Tigers. But we, we do have to talk about this, Gareth. We must stop people inviting people who are way, way more qualified than we are. It's, it's not going to make us look particularly good. So, But thank you for joining us, Paul. I wanted to kick off because I think we're, we're in this eternally changing world, which everyone sees on a day-to-day -day basis. Just, you know, just recently, the conversations around AI, for example, I know we'll touch on this later, is, is really catching fire. But I wanted to start with perhaps a more basic question uh, for you, Paul, which is analyzing the future. And I, and I don't know whether you'd necessarily describe yourself as a futurologist, but talk, can you talk to us about what you think the value of analyzing the future is and, and how you go about doing that or think about that? Sure. Uh, definitely not a futurologist. People study their lives for that. And that's what they sort of want to do. I, I sort of call myself a technologist or a sort of uh, an optimist, an optimist cynic, if that makes sense, when it comes to technology. Um, but to your question, um, what's the value of analysing the future? It, it's a lot of different things. And I think that sort of some degree sort of changed because of the technologies that are coming. But ultimately, the answer is or has to be really better decisions are made and outcomes for everyone uh, because of those decisions, I think is sort of the ultimate goal. Technology is here to obviously, you know, help the human experience. That's the idea and sort of, you know, remove friction, take away mundane jobs and make all of our lives better. So really the sort of the, the value of analysing anything really when it's not just technological, but anything around the future has to surely be better outcomes for people. So how, how do you, so the, the, I've been known to use the rocket boots analogy far too many times in the past. And of course, when you start to analyze the future, your ability to sort of correctly predict varies. How do you, I mean, can you talk about some of the examples of where the things that you're looking at for the future and how you think that's going to change us? Maybe that's a better way to bring it to real world rather than talking about rocket boots. Um, yeah, I mean, I look at lots of different indicators um, around the world, you know, whether that's reports, whether that's interviewing people, whether that's um, looking at just sort of observational changes um, and that. I, I, it wasn't mentioned in the intro, but I've actually written for Cool Hunting for over a decade. So I get to go to like weird and wonderful events and sort of see trends sort of emerge before they go sort of mainstream, not just consumer, but also business. So it, it, it's, it's a fun one. But um, 
it's I mean there's a great book super forecasters I don't know if you've read that um amazing book which sort of explains why some people are better at it than others I don't claim to be a super forecaster at all but I do look at what the super forecasters that are good at it and they're obviously all marking themselves and other people look at their sort of things and and they sort of some change some sort of come in some sort of go out and you know it's sort of industry specific but for me um looking at those or, or continually refining your indicators are really really good i found a great one recently about sort of the world of future of work called the leesman index didn't know about that before i did um the series on future of work for mouthwash they just have so many different ways of looking at you know if a, a territory is back if that makes sense and how the sort of cities are working and really like what are the offices of the future they've got a very good idea of where it's sort of heading and they interview lots of different people every week and they have lots of other indicators like what what money prep's doing because they've got proprietary deals with people like that so it's about figuring out what the right sort of indicators are and for me i've i've sort of been looking at a few specific technologies um over the years and those which i put in the book are uh, 3d printing 4d printing uh nanotechnology got uh the sort of mixed reality if you want to look at that ar vr qr uh the big one blockchain which everyone's always interested in and you mentioned it already ai those those are the ones which i'm betting on which will really sort of change the world and disrupt the world and i think we're sort of seeing that in various green shoots now or it's already happened and sort of ne- the next revolution or evolution of those are happening as well i do a little bit of this work and it, it's a very military thing is trying to work out what's going to happen next we did a whole podcast episode on wargaming and red teaming mm-hmm. so challenging the perceived wisdom challenging the plan based on what you think the adversary is going to do and and part of the the work the the intelligence staff do in a, in a military organization is exactly that it's not only predicting what they think is going to happen next but also how other people are going to behave how much do you sort of take into account what emerging technologies are coming and then think about the different ways they might be used because presumably you've got the most likely kind of course of action the most likely thing that and then you've got these potential radical changes if you know a technology hits a particular point and i think Quantum computing is probably a really good example of that, where it's probably not going to have a huge impact until it hits a point where it's nearly fully error corrected and it can be you know, utilized outside of very, very high tech sort of experimentation. How do I balance it? God, not, probably not very well is the answer, but I do, I do my best. <laughs> um, the, um, it, it depends really on the client that sort of you're working for or if it's um, just sort of research. But the clients I get to work for tend to be larger than the average bear. And they have sort of very uh, a few data points that they like to sort of push in your way. So it's like, oh, in case it helps, you know, and that sort of thing. Um, for me, I found that the the data sort of side of it and sort of then marrying up with what's likely is usually where people come into trouble because often people sort of draw straight lines, um, yep. you know, top and top and right and that sort of thing. And that that very rarely happens with the technology world. Or they look at the Gartner hype cycle uh, and they go, well, it's, it's going to go there next, isn't it? And you sort of look at it and go, no, that's just, that's just one possibility. You know, the likelihood of that is that it'll probably be fluctuating. You know, that curve works for a lot of things and has for a number of years doesn't mean it's always going to and certainly when you throw in quantum that's a, a moment of change where lots of things that were accepted understood can be factored in for will fundamentally change like you say we've got a couple of 
years yet before that all hits. Um, but it doesn't mean it can't be disrupted before then either. That's that's the real interesting part is what's going on behind closed doors. Yes, we know that it's very expensive, technologically laborsome and all of that sort of stuff. But it doesn't mean that it's not happening where we don't see it, if that makes sense. And that's usually the worry when you don't see disruption coming from the science. So yeah, the, absolutely. I think that's a I'm, I'm fascinated to how you approach this, because, you know, from one of the points about this podcast is how can we how can we think differently and think better and so businesses are saying what's the next technology that's going to disrupt us or what's the next trend and you've, you've given a few examples but the challenge is it's never a straight line it's never like in year one it's here in year two it's more and there's a straight line of and in 10 years it will take over how do you track and think about the things you see to figure out whether something is breakthrough or will just become something on the side that's not very interesting. So I think lots of people do it in different ways. Personally, I have what I call data files on everything. So I just keep a running, it's very, very high tech Google document on um, exactly what's going on in a lot of different worlds. So I have a lot of links that I can um, instantly go to and a lot of stuff that pulls in from Excel charts that sort of will show different data points should I need them. What's quite interesting with those is you can sort of essentially build up a timeline and then sometimes you can sort of predict an impact point or you can start to sort of um, set clocks to sort of say check in with us in six months and see where they're at and therefore reevaluate X, Y and Z. That's something that I've done for a number of years. And you can see that, yes, the Gartner Hype Cycle and all those other models that are out there sometimes get it right or generally get it right. But you can also see that it's speeding up in a lot of these areas. And that's both for me interesting because it means i'll be in a job but also somewhat terrifying for the speed at which these are going and also i mean we're seeing it recently the loose reins that people have on some of these technologies and that it's like well move fast and break things work for one company didn't it that's clearly the model which we've got to go to and you're like or not there are other routes you know that sort of <laughs> well thing. i mean so, just just to go fast yeah. and break things my sense has been that's a marketing slogan rather than representative of actually a well thought out or implemented strategy. But I, I want to go back. Yeah. And, and I guess this is part of your magic, which is I'd, I'd said, how do you figure out these trends? And you said, well, I have lots of data. Yeah, but I, I see lots of data and I still get the answers wrong. I think you mm. started to poke at something where you said you look at rate of change as well as mm -hmm. change. Can you dig into that a little bit more? Yeah, there's lots of different indicators when it comes to data, isn't there, and sort of uh, formats that it can come in. So, yes, you can look at velocity. Are, are things being mentioned more and more? You would, you know, if, if we were to factor that in, we would say um, OpenAI is the most innovative technology ever to come out because everyone, their mother's talking about it right now. Is it? I mean, it's very good. It's certainly like coming on leaps and bounds. It's very interesting. We've got lots to talk about, I'm sure, later. But um, ultimately when you look at it it's still only as smart as the person tapping in the numbers right and tap, sorry tapping in the the prompts as it were um you know shit in shit out it can't help you you know polish something that's not not super great you know and that's the thing it can it can only help you to a certain degree if you put some smarts in it um where it comes to when i use those documents that i mentioned to you so i look at basically you give a score right how impactful is this on a scale of one to ten i do love one to ten i don't know i should do one to a hundred it gives you more to sort of think about anyway it's more math than i care to do but um 
really for me is when I look at those things, I was like, how important is this to two things? Number one, uh, right now companies and number two, future of humanity. And those are sort of quite good ones because in my head, I have a really clear idea of like where not to two is versus where three and seven is, you know, and that sort of thing. So for me, um, that's what really helps. And then you can start to sort of have a score next to it and say, once this gets over this amount per this, start sending emails out about this and X, Y and Z. That's where I sort of like go to. It's not, I'm not, like I said, I'm not a hard and fast futurist. I don't have a mathematical system. Lots of people have systems that they put stuff in. And that's not me. I'm much more of a um, sit back and view it and then start delving into things when asked rather than keeping on my periphery every single technology that comes to sort of um, idea. Because really not all of them have impact to change. Doesn't mean they won't impact technology, but they won't fundamentally impact um society and that sort of thing and that's where my sort of future of where i'm sort of pushing my career is going in the intelligence world there's a a model we we use called the cone of plausibility as you say you you can't study everything you can't track everything so what you do is you try and keep it to what is plausible including what is wildly unlikely but Mm. still in that in that range and as you predict further out your cone increases so we kind of know with some fairly good confidence what's going to happen tomorrow, but next mm. week is going to be a bit a bit more woolly. When you're predicting out months, years, you've got this massive range. So within that cone, you have what you think is most likely. You then have a slightly wider field of view, which is what is possible. And you mm. have this wider field of view even further, which is what is plausible. And within that is probably going to be things like those wild card game changing events or technology or behaviors or actions that are going to completely radically change your planning and your course of action. And mm-hmm. so to bring it back to helping decision making, you then create that decision point where you say, if this, then we need to either do this or we need yeah. to have a, re- a review of our. And and it and uh, like the the super forecasting thing, the thing that I find really interesting about that is when you read the book, it's it's not these people are really good at prediction. It's these people are really really good at taking in new information and assimilating it into their models. So it's a yeah. continual review, and that sounds exactly like what you're doing, being prompted by what it is your clients need the information for, and continually reviewing. And your skill is clearly in not only getting hold of the information, triaging it and sort of deciding and understanding what's relevant, having that interactive relationship with your clients to know what they need. Yeah, it's definitely a two-way street. But that word you use, triage, is such a good word to use because there is an, you know, being on the front line of nurse or army and that sort of thing, it is the same, isn't it? You have to basically say, what is in front of me? How could, what am I evaluating it? Where does it fit in the priority level? And then you've got to move forward, right? Because otherwise you just get stuck in it. It was funny yeah. when you when you were talking just then about the cone, it, it reminded me of something which I constantly think about. And when I'm on stage, uh, if I'm lucky enough to talk in front of people, I always bring this thing up and you you can tell that if you've got a nerd um, group in front of you or not. It's the um, the Westworld divergence model. Have you seen that either of you? Yeah. So it's yeah. the circle which like blips around. And I constantly think of the word world, but also just technologies in, in general like that. 
that because they do they they sort of undulate and they modulate all the all the time and you can say yeah when that that announced it like caused a massive spike and therefore this line then changed that's how i think of it in my head if that makes sense so i'm constantly the lines in my head of like how important are things are constantly going up and down but i've i've yet to make a model that looks so beautiful as the one that was in westworld and i'm so sad it's not continuing well, that season because I, I, it's almost become reality <laughs> well i want to drag you guys back because we've we've talked about super super forecasters a couple of times and i think i'm 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 broadly familiar with the concept but actually we're assuming that everyone knows what super forecasters are and why i mean to, just to sort of set it up why for example the u.s department of defense spends a lot of money employing people that are in basements in funny parts of the world paul could you talk just just give us a sort of a a couple of minutes on super forecasters what what they do why they do it and how they came about Sure. So where what I was talking about was the book, right? So it's, um, oh God, uh, the full power of super forecasters, the art and science of prediction, I think is what it is. But the gentleman who wrote it, or there's two, wasn't there, was um, Tetlock, he was a psychologist, and you've got the other one, Dan Gardner. The idea behind super forecaster is essentially a person who has been um, more accurate uh, than general public or experts. That's, I think, is sim the simplest sort of answer um, that you can give. And this the key is that they are statistically more likely to get it right than any other people. I think uh, it, I don't think it's a superly old term. I, I don't really know to be honest. Is the answer? I'm trying to string this out into two minutes. I'm not sure. I've got no, no, no. It's fine. I mean, and, and I'm, but the book and I'm, is amazing. I will give it. That. I was going to say, and I <laughs> yeah, think just, just building yeah. a little bit on this, because this was this was the fact that they were recognised experts who yeah. statistically were proven to be no better or worse than a random person. And so yeah. they actually yeah. spent a large amount of money saying, well, let's go away and see if we can do a better job. And they, they, I think, uh, and again, I, I actually, I, I should go away and properly read the book as opposed to what I've learned about it, but they went away and they said, Hey people, random people, we want you to help us make better decisions. And they, they, they got a large number of people. There was no specific background everything from mm. teachers to whoever wanted to do this. And as you say, they found people who statistically and for ne not necessarily a clear and obvious reason were better at making decisions in the past and therefore, were, and they started to take making better decisions in the future. So I, mm. I, I, I thought this was a, I thought this was fascinating because it maybe highlights the point that predicting the future is very, very hard. And it also makes the point, if you think outside the box a little bit, there may be some more innovative ways of solving that. So to this point, I believe there are various mysterious institutions around the world who now hire these people and are on the payroll, uh, not because they are in inverted commas experts with 30 years expertise in this area, but statistically they've found they can predict the future a little bit better. Mm. But I, I wanted to, we've we've talked about this idea of, for want of a better word, the linear or li near linear progression of an idea. So I think AI, and I know we keep teasing this, we'll come back to this. At one level, AI is, has had this progression that you could spot and chart over many years um, to the point where we are now, chat GPT and all of that kind of good stuff. Paul, I'd love to get your thoughts though on what about the the ideas and the concepts that come out of nowhere that aren't linear that hadn't appeared until this year and now all of a sudden this year take over a is does is that really a thing because everyone goes oh well, we've never heard about it and the answer is 
well, if you'd have asked these people that are told about it. So does that exist? Mm. Things that, that literally disrupt at a moment's notice. And if so, how do you factor those in when you think about things? Do you, I don't know, do they exist? And how do you factor the out of sort of the, the, uh, the crazy Ivan things that come out of nowhere? I mean, what you're describing there is almost true creativity, right? And it just like somebody springs out and all of a sudden they've got an idea and it's brand new and no one's ever heard of it. The likelihood of that happening, I find very, very low. Uh, the, the simple reason for that is, and I forget the gentleman who made the series, but Google it, is everything's a remix, right? In some way, shape or form, you've had to had some sort of input in order to change something and then have some output on the back end. And you see it with music, you see it with tech, you see it with everything. And increasingly, you know, you can look at ChatGTV plugins, just a remix, what you've got plus something else equals something different on the other end the interesting thought the interesting bit or thinking when you get to sort of disruption is when you don't see it coming and that's true disruption right something happened and that anything else let's be honest just laziness right you saw something coming in your periphery you didn't do anything about it it's disrupted you guess what lazy company is it like hardcore disruption not really you could have seen it coming something that's disruptive means it comes completely out of nowhere you weren't expecting it there was no real way of expecting it you couldn't predict it and that's like true disruption when you come into it when you sort of look in business models it slightly shifts into sort of like well do these three things exist therefore yep you've been disrupted and it's innovative and so those elements are the interesting ones which i sort of like look for a little bit more um and they're they're hard um to sort of to, to find if that makes sense um does that answer everything i can't remember it was a long well, question it, Sorry. it does and i i think i i want to push on this idea of remixing because i'm 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 about to look like I'm arguing that creativity isn't as important as we, we kind of make out. And maybe a different way of saying it is innovation. Everywhere I go, people get very excited about innovation. But I think your point about most ideas are a remix or, a, or an increment on an idea. I think that's something that we, we perhaps don't pay as much attention to or don't value somehow as much. But the reality is, um, you know, I'm a product manager. And so people say, you have to come up with amazing new ideas. And I can assure you, I can say this grandly, I can double you the revenue of a business by using an idea that already exists and applying it in a slightly different way. So I think that's a really important point about remixing. Now, that's not to say that innovation isn't valuable, quite the contrary, but I mm -hmm. think it's this classic mix of the two. And in a previous podcast, um, still one of my favorite references to electric hot pants, which is incremental innovation, which is highly valuable, as well as sort of the moonshot stuff. There's a relationship between this idea of innovation and remixing, which is taking ideas from different sectors. And it doesn't even have to be business sectors. It can just be from different parts of the world, different parts of life. And it, it comes back to what we constantly talk about in terms of the need for and the value of diversity in thinking about problems. But when you come back to this idea of the nonlinear change and prediction, there's a really, really good analogy, which is using animals. So we've all probably heard of Nissan to the black swans, to the idea that, that no one had ever seen a black swan and therefore they don't exist until you know the British sailors got to Australia and suddenly found black swans. So there's this idea that there's these things that you just assume don't exist because you've not seen them before. I think we all kind of get the idea of black swans. But then there's also mm. elephants and jellyfish. Okay, elephants are the things where... What, black elephants? 
Uh, no, just elephants. So <laughs> just elephants, regular elephants. <laughs> just regular elephants. So <laughs> black swans are the things that we don't have the data for. Mm -hmm. So we're not looking for the data. It's not in our routine modeling. And therefore, when it happens, it feels very disruptive. But mm -hmm. in, with hindsight, you go, ah, well, if we'd just been, you know, if we'd be looking in how another sector is developing, we probably could have thought about this, but we didn't. Elephants are those things where we know they're there. We're ignoring them. It's the elephant in the room. And we're ignoring it because it's probably too difficult. It's too complicated. It's it, it's not really what we do. It's not what we've done before. Um, and that's where the biases really play because, you know, it's, well, it's never affected us before, so it probably won't. We'll probably be all right until it is. And then suddenly you wish you had and dealt with that complexity. And then there's mm. jellyfish, which are things that appear really simple. And then if you actually bother to start investigating them, they are far more complex than you give them credit for and i think uh blockchain is a jellyfish oh god 100 percent based on that description 100 percent. yeah Love that. Oh, I think, we're, we're, we're going to i i feel a conversation coming on blockchain is one of those things where i i have views about it and not necessarily always positive but but keep keep going with that because i think uh, we, we'll, we'll stop for a break in a minute but... a jellyfish can be beautiful and dangerous yes sorry carry on jellyfish well, I, well I would say we're, we're all talking about ai at the moment because there's loads of news stories about it people are doing interesting things with it we're all kind of playing with it um the the technologies that are happening or the changes that are happening that no one's talking about, those are going to be the black swans. The technologies that people are kind of talking about, but then without necessarily fully understanding how they work, making really broad generalizations about, well, those are the jellyfish. And I think you know, everybody, when you say blockchain, a lot of people think about cryptocurrencies and yeah. they're, and, that, and that's as far as they go. And they're like, well, and they either think cryptocurrencies are the best things in sliced bread or cryptocurrencies are a big giant Ponzi scheme and it's all going to crash and burn. What they fail to do is look at the underlying technology and think about how that is going to impact a whole variety of aspects of routine engagement that mm. today we do very, very differently to what we're probably going to do tomorrow. Well, I'll tell you what. And, and things like capitalism. <laughs> yes. Tiny things. Yeah. I was going to say, why don't why don't we stop for a quick break and then let's come back and actually, I I think talking about blockchain and then we've 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 sort of talked about enough. We should talk about it. But before then, when we come back, uh, something you mentioned, Paul, which is the the hype cycle. I think mm -hmm. we should talk about that for a second because a I'm not sure everyone's heard of the hype cycle, and b I think it's 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 very appropriate when we talk about technologies and where they are and. Are they valuable? Are they short-term or long-term? So let's take a quick break. Uh, and when we come back, uh, get ready for, for the hype cycle. Okay. Welcome back. Um, just before the break, uh, we, we we were delving into the fact that I might not be as bought into the idea of blockchain as I probably by definition should be being in technology. We'll come back to that. But actually what I wanted to do was to talk um, 
probably quite foolishly first about uh, the, the hype cycle. And I, I should be careful because I believe it is Gartner officially sort of have the, the, the rights to the hype cycle. Although, frankly, when we talk through it, I think you'll find that it's a, it's a re it's one of these classic cases of someone wrote something down, which when you look at it is blindingly obvious and you've always understood for your life. So I'll take a few seconds to talk through it and then we can sort of start seeing where some of these technologies fit in. And by the way, you should never do this on a podcast. Describe a curve. That's the worst thing you could possibly <laughs> do. So I'm going to walk you through this concept called the hype cycle, uh, one which, by the way, I was only talking to my team about a couple of weeks ago. And at a high level, it describes the adoption of typically technology, but of course it can be applied to lots of things, ideas, et cetera, et cetera. And there are multiple stages and um, they the, the, sort of the graph has a couple of, of, of axes. The vertical axis is visibility and the horizontal axis is over a period of time. So this is how typically technologies are adopted over time. And so the first thing is when the technology launches, it's sort of in the bottom left-hand corner where no one really knows about it. Perhaps there isn't any excitement because nobody knows about it. And it's, it's sort of right at the beginning. Not very interesting. It's sort of, here's a technology. I've not heard anything about it. I don't know how important it is. You then get to the next stage where the visibility is, as it were, maximized. And a different way of saying it is, people's expectations and excitement is maximized. And just to sort of give a bit of context what I've just described, it is beautifully referred to as the peak of inflated expectations. You then have this weird sort of anti-movement. And actually, I, I'm, I'm gonna try and give a bit more useful context. Um, I've been in large organizations where a company was bought. And on Monday morning, nobody knew who that company was and nobody cared. On Tuesday, the company had been bought. And by Wednesday, this company was going to answer all the problems in the world. It was going to double our revenue overnight. They were geniuses. They were brilliant. Brackets, it was the peak of inflated expectation. There was no way on earth this new part of the organization that we had acquired was ever going to meet those expectations. You then, the curve drops again. And then you go to the next stage which is the trough of disillusionment. And the trough of disillusionment says, Monday, I hadn't heard of the company. Wednesday, it was the most valuable acquisition we were ever going to make and we can all retire and be millionaires. And by Thursday, <laughs> I don't know why we bought them. It was a complete waste of time. They're all idiots. It'll never work. Trough of disillusionment. And then you get to the slightly more interesting bits where all of a sudden the visibility or the perceived value increases as you climb up what they call the slope of enlightenment. And in my language, the example I just gave, it is, you know what, actually, that company we bought, there's some really interesting technology. And while it might not double, triple, quadruple, or allow us to retire, hey, we could use it here and we could use it here and it could solve an interesting problem for our customers. And then you get to what they call the plateau of productivity, which is it levels off and it's just another regular technology. It's another part of the business. There's nothing more special or less special about it. So I love this idea that there's sort of the, the not, don't know anything about it, oversold that it's gonna solve everything, every problem you've ever come across. 
then it gets to the, this was a waste of our time. And then it slowly starts to climb up and become a valuable tool in your toolkit. Paul, I, I, I've, I think appallingly described what is a beautiful and simple concept when you sit on paper and it's explained uh, well. D do you do you buy into that? And is there anything you think that's worth adding on top of what I've just talked about? Uh, no, it was very good. A very good uh, description. Um, I always say uh, if I'm doing it orally that it is a uh, ghost pointing to the right and that sort of thing. So that's the way that I do it. Um, but uh, the only thing I don't sorry i love it it's overused blah blah blah. it's very helpful in some respects to sort of get people on the where do you think you know you can get your own company to do it and that sort of thing and it's very sort of useful to sort of see where your employees heads are at and sort of how far you've got to bring them to certain places all of that very useful the one thing it doesn't really do is it doesn't help you understand where your industry or your business is with emerging tech it just says emerging tech in general but for your for um automotive company if you look at the current sort of um technologies and where they put them on the curve a lot of them go like these are completely wrong you know if you look at pharma pharma pharmaceuticals these are completely wrong you know that sort of thing so it, it works for general sort of um businesses but not necessarily specific ones and that's where you can get a lot more value out of the hype cycles when you measure it for your own businesses so I think it's also it's a very very useful tool in hindsight very easy yes, to say yes, yeah, yeah. I, I we were on the hype cycle but it's very difficult at the current time to say, you know, chat, chat CTP, AI, we, we, you know, we've, we've jumped around it, but are we currently heading up the peak? This is the or, point. Or, this... or have we already peaked with AI because we were talking about AI 10 years ago and now we're seeing the actual use of it? We don't know. And, and so in hindsight, in 10 years' time, people will look back and say, well, it was obvious we were at this point on the curve. Like, I find the, the Gartner curve a very... Uh, a very useful tool for describing what happened. I, I think I think you're right in terms of hindsight, but I think certainly before I'd seen this, the hype curve, I didn't have the sensitivity to this. So now I'm much more sensitive that when something new comes out and someone says it's going to solve all the world's ills, I am more cautious now because, oh, this is a pattern we've seen before. Likewise, when my team members say, well, this is all pointless, this is ridiculous, I don't care about it. Actually, the trick is, how do you get it to a point where it's valuable? And I think the other reason why I wanted to introduce it, and this will take us maybe back to blockchain, which is, and maybe this isn't a useful differentiation, but when is something truly revolutionary and truly changes the world we live in and the decisions you have to make as business, and what is something, an extra useful tool in the toolbox? So I'll, I'll, I'll set my stall out, which is I think blockchain to some degree has been overhyped. Not because I don't think it's a valuable technology, not because I don't think it changes how people uh, trust information and how information is stored, but I think it's just an, it's an evolution of something that we've had before. I think it's a useful tool. I can't get excited about it as a world-changing, epoch-changing technology. I see it as it's another capability. Thank you very much. Let's, let's move on. And if you, if you ask me to compare AI versus blockchain, blockchain, super useful, used for a lot more, as you say, than, um, uh, than, than cryptocurrency. But actually, I'm far more interested in AI because I think that one that one is more fundamental than a slightly faster horse. 
And I would, I, I'd probably get shouted at in a second. I know we'll shut up to let you sort of come back, but I would argue blockchain is a faster horse. We've always had ways of maintaining trust and storing information. This is a slightly different, slightly better way. AI, I think, is a fundamental game changer in terms of decisions that we would have employed human beings to make. We may no longer employ those human beings to make those fundamental and sometimes even creative decisions. So, Paul, I've I've just I've just been rude about blockchain. I think it's time for you to come back and 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 Gareth talk about why you think that's perhaps more fundamental than I'm suggesting. Uh, I'm trying to desperately remember the quote that I'm trying to think of, but it, it's essentially saying um, technology that you, was um, around when you were born is, is great and magical and going to change the world and everything after like the age of 40 should be feared. To your point around blockchain, I, I find because it's so theoretical at this, to understand it, you know, it's obviously here and, there and around and that sort of thing, you can... Um, you can mystify people quite quite quickly uh, because the majority of people in the world don't know what a ledger is. And once you get the idea of what a ledger is, people go, oh, I get it. Okay, great. It's that. So for me, that's that's always the first stumbling block. Blockchain is one of those things that now people think is difficult, but actually is becoming more easier because of things like AI and the way that sort of information gets sort of pushed around. My fondness for blockchain and why I put it in the book was simply because it is one of those technology that is so fundamental or has elements of it that are so fundamental to society that you mentioned trust. Yes, we've had it before, but look where we are. We've had it absolutely rocked by a few years of social media. And um, we are absolutely going to go through another problem with that when it comes to AI and photo generation. Once it can start doing fingers, we're all in trouble, which I think someone showed that the next thing in mind journey can do that. Yeah, that's why I think blockchain has you know, real legs, I think, because of the way it's fundamentally able to restructure existing elements that we have had, you know, businesses, smart contracts, that sort of stuff. It, it, it's got the disruptive potential because it can put a lot of people out of jobs. Yes, obviously, there's lots of technologies that can do that. Um, but when we get back to how we are building um, the, the next society you know decades and that sort of thing it it need we need something that we can trust because it, we've had it rocked and we need that fundamental element and i think there's a job for governments to do there's a job for technology to do and i think there's a job for both of those things to do together but we've got to be careful about how we put those two together because they can disadvantage certain groups and how we introduce it will not necessarily bring everybody along and i, th I think we should probably say at this point there'll be people going what the hell is blockchain we'll leave you to go google it but fundamentally the models that we've historically had is that we have enabled particular organizations or institutions, whether it be governments or banks, to, for want of a better word, own the trust. I trust you because that person says you can trust me. And the difference with blockchain is it's distributed. So it's not in the hands of those individual institutions. It is a almost like the internet where it is everywhere and therefore no one person can own that trust or subvert that trust. But bringing it back, Paul, I implied, and I don't even know whether I believe myself on this, that there are, there are technology changes which are more slightly better widgets or slightly different versus technology changes which are literally earth-shattering and fundamental. And my, my sort of supposition was blockchain is one of those that is valuable and will permeate the world but is a little bit more straightforward, whereas AI is perhaps something more sort of paradigm changing. 
Do, do you think that's fair or is it all or is it a continuum or is it nonsense? Actually, they're all as as paradigm changing. So I'm going to jump in here and I'm, I'm going to drag this podcast back into the military because we have to talk about military stuff. <laughs> but if we look at, take us back a year. So back end of 2021, start of 2022, the military intelligence analysis of what Russia was going to do and how Russia was going to behave and if they were going to invade Ukraine, what was going to happen was all based around capability focusing on technology. We got very, very excited over the last two decades every time Russia announced a new technological development, a new capability, a new thing. We got really excited by the T-14 Armata. It was going to be you know, a main battle tank that would you know, compete against the Leopard and the, the Challenger and you know, Western main battle tanks. We looked at their nuclear torpedoes and all these technologies, we were focused on things. And if we've learned anything, it was the failure to recognise, and this is why Paul's conference is so brilliantly named, Technology, Behaviour and Data. You've got to see the relationship between the technology, the way people are going to use it, and the way that it allows information flows. We overestimated Russia by not focusing and synthesising our understanding of their technology and our understanding of their social norms. They're deeply corrupt. They're overly centralised in their command. They don't allow for freedom of action. They don't allow for innovation. They uh, have all of these horrible social problems that have meant that they can't capitalise on their overwhelming technological advantage. And I think blockchain is a really good example of where we are you know, not recognising its impact on social interaction, on its ability to rebuild some of the trust problems that we created through other technologies. And we're not necessarily thinking about the compound effects of these things. So blockchain versus AI, I think it, it's really tangible to see how AI is doing things that are shocking that only a few months ago computers couldn't do. And so it's really tangible to say, they're going to steal our jobs, the robots are coming. Whereas blockchain, it, it, it's really hard to actually see what it's doing, but it's having a huge impact and will have a huge impact on the on the very fabric of the way that we interact. And so I think we've got to be really careful that we don't look at shiny new technologies in isolation. We start actually thinking about how they compound and how they synthesize with social interaction, communication flows uh, and behaviour. Mm. I just I, I would add one point on that and I would just say for me blockchain is it fundamentally shifts things to do with ownership right ownership and create and that sort of thing when you look at AI not so much you know that's the thing you can create something based on a tool that someone else has created or even a tool that you create but you don't own that AI right you're using a system that somebody else owns and as we've seen you can go from we're a very cute shiny nice young company that we're all for the future of humanity and we think we're going to you know keep a lid on this and be super nice and clean and that's sort of thing flip it over you got 10 billion from Microsoft and all of a sudden now we're full capitalists and everything's behind closed doors but not transparent one iota and you can all just buy us and so you look at that and go 
oh, uh, well, we put a lot of stock in you, and now we're like not sure, and now you've sort of forced an AI war race type thing. Oh, God, have we sped this up too much? How do we put the genie back in the bottle? Fast forward, you've got a thousand people signing a document saying, please break the six months, which is some superfluous number that they came up with. Um, it's so also not going to help up. in any way. Well, I mean, but not in any way whatsoever. But, but let's, <laughs> let's talk about it, because I, I think the premise for the people who signed, and interestingly enough, Elon Musk, who one would imagine would be the person saying faster, 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 was one of the people who signed. The statement was, AI is evolving now at such a rate, we need to slow down to understand the impact and implications of us doing this. There is, there is risk in us allowing AI to evolve, I, I, suggesting it's sentient, which of course it's not, well, at least at this point, but that the people should be more thoughtful. People listening to this might well say, well, hang on a minute, chat gpt is fantastic it tells me an itinerary for when i go on holiday or a recipe or a poem or whatever it might be you know some of these other ones if you do fingers why should it slow down why i mean i'd, I'd love to have you maybe paul talk about why should we be concerned surely quite the opposite we should say this provides huge opportunity for our future why wouldn't we not slow it down? Why wouldn't we accelerate it? What's what what's the perceived danger there, Paul? Two words: unintended consequences. Right? You're looking. Okay, let's take the example that you just did. Right? So, oh, AI can just create me a lovely list of itinerary things to do on holiday. Great, you got that list. Guess what? You could have done that without AI. Right? Someone on the internet has actually said these are the best ten things to do based on the holiday that I went to. Well, guess what? There are even people say haven't been there, but these are the ten things that a friend told me, or I'm Googled myself, and you created that list that then destroys revenue models that people have got they're you know changing the way that the internet sort of is working and those are you know nobody's set out to destroy the, you know that person's revenue or internet but you've done it right and so in order to sort of see where those sorts of future potentials and it's all potentials because you know we're not quite sure how it will all work and and you know no one is saying well let's just not use ai until we know those things you know there are some things which you can foresee right Bad actors are a one. Guaranteed. Any any system's always had a bad actor in it that wants to exploit it. Even if it's just a nerd in his bedroom trying to do something. That's how hackers were born, all of that sort of stuff, right? Everyone's trying to sort of um, you know, mess around with the system, see if it could do something funny until it's not funny and it's, you know, bankrupted a bank or something like that, you know? So that's where I think a lot of people come down on AI is like we should not necessarily stifle all the gas because we like progress and we think that this is a good thing that can help humanity but wouldn't it be nice if we just figured out like you don't have to go so fast here's some checks and balances we're not saying don't innovate we're not saying don't play in a nice shiny um secure sandbox but we don't have to which i think we have done pretty much is said here's the door uh fit as many people through you as you can we're not going to verify any of you are bad intended people we've made this thing as secure as we sort of think maybe had a sort of whiteboard of ideas but don't really have any massive information on security or anything like that and have at it you know and but we'll do our best to fix it if anything bad happens but we don't think anything will happen because we've done that whiteboard exercise and we're looking at it now and we're starting to see you know that this is not as superb as people are saying you know it's it's bad information can come out of it you can change it to be 
uh, and this will always happen, even if you tweak bits on the back end of any algorithm or any program. Oh, well, it won't do that anymore. You're like, oh, but what about these things it has now allowed? You know, it's a continual cycle of updating that you have to do. So you have to foresee issues. Otherwise, you will always end up with big problems. And my worry is that we come up with one where it's just like, oh, God, and now that's out. And we, we have no way of putting it back. I, I should say, by the way, that that even though I pose the question, I completely agree. I know. Yeah. I, think, <laughs> I, think, I think this is. I think. I think. Come the time that the robot overlords take us over, I don't want to be known as the person who said, "Come on, let's do this." I, I wanted to throw another thing in there because a lot of this is very difficult to put your finger on. There is a non-specific danger that we cannot foresee, but we should be thoughtful about. It's very hard for people. I, I can't. I can't sort of explode that and and resolve people's fears but here's a, something about ai which i think if people hadn't thought about is really useful ai is a black box today if i declare something to be true to some degree you can go away and test how i came to that conclusion this is the data chris used this is the experience he's got you, you can almost go back and validate why I answered in that way, or how true could we measure that to be? One of the real challenges about AI, which is in, in, in the flip side is magic, is it is an entirely black box. We say to a system, go away, suck up a bunch of information and create an algorithm, which frankly, we can never see. All we can do is press the button and get you to tell us an answer. So if AI says, kill everyone there is no way for us to understand how did they get to kill everyone what information do we need to change or what bit of the algorithm we need to change so i think it's it's actually it's really interesting you should you should listen very carefully to how people describe these things and so um google have just uh, released their equivalent of chat gpt as you, as you described paul there's almost a there's a war at the moment where everyone's trying to come out with them but Google were extraordinarily careful when they released this. And, and I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm probably slightly misquoting, but they said, beware, it might lie to you. It might give you incorrect information, which I think is a really interesting statement. It says when Google are saying, by the way, guys, this could, I mean, the word lie is a very strong word. That's a bit of a warning that says, it's very difficult for us to understand how this thing works and, and you know, fundamentally whether it's right or wrong. The perfect example was the Microsoft bot that they released, which was reported in the newspaper as being a racist bot. And actually, I believe it got incredibly racist. Well, why was that? Well, the information it, it used to build its model had racist content in there. And therefore it said, I'm going to build my models based on the information you give me. And if you're racist or biased, I will give you racist and biased answers. So I I do think it's fascinating, but I, I, I think this is the thing that people are juggling with, which is AI has such an astounding opportunity to help humanity. I think people are playing the game of what's the worst that could happen. What if an AI could say to me tomorrow morning, Chris, I think you should go and see a doctor because I can see something that the best specialist in the world might not see for another six months, that's a great thing. But what if it then tells me I should invest in something which crashes and I'm penniless or 
I think it's that that juxtaposition of amazing opportunity versus pretty catastrophic actions, where, as always, nuclear weapons, fantastic. Let's go build a nuclear weapon. It'll win the war for us. We'll defeat the, the enemy. But by the way, do you realize for the next 100 years, we're always going to be waiting to see if we're still alive the next day? So fascinating technology. I mean, where, where do you think it's going to go, Paul? I think the key word you might have missed out of all of that last description harks back to the hype cycle, and that is expectations, right? So Google managed expectations there and said, not perfect. Don't do this. We're thinking about these things. They launched it in a much smarter way. They also second launched it. So you've got, you know, the, the, the benefit of hindsight. But my issue around everything that you just mentioned with AI is nobody is thinking about this now right they're like we can do this we can do this oh we've got these plugins we've got to do this oh blah, 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 blah. potential is everything right the reality of potential very different you know the outcomes of um uh, scenario a plus scenario b is different depending on who you put in those scenarios right and that's my issue just because you've thought about scenario a and scenario b oh there's not anyone that could be that they can't possibly be dangerous it depends who is in those scenarios and what they're doing. And that's my issue with AI is that at the moment, I don't believe we have, I think we have the smartest people working on it, but I'm not sure of their motivations. They haven't signed up to anything. You know, everyone keeps changing their don't be evils to now like make money, <laughs> you know, and stuff like that. And you look at these things and you kind of say like, have you got the best interests of everyone at heart? And could you just put a web page up to say that, you know, not, you know, because accountability in this sort of realm doesn't really exist. You can shut something down. You can find people out of existence. But really, it gets down to like, well, you could just set up again the next day, you know, and that and that's the issue is like there's so many fundamental elements that AI, if it's not harnessed or it's utilized in a poor way can really rock some big systems. Like we mentioned capitalism, we laugh, but that is a reality of what can happen. You've just said, you know, if we start attaching, well, all the bankers, um, that's a really interesting point we, we've sort of talked about with banks. All the banking people have said, do not use chat GTP for anything. No information about us goes into that model or does anything. And none of these APIs will be open to these 10 companies and that sort of thing. It's like, wow, they're taking it seriously. You should take it seriously. There's a really interesting quote, which is, never let the future disturb you. You will meet it, if you have to, with the same weapons of reason which today arm you against the present. That was Marcus Aurelius, 161 AD. And I think it's a really useful grounding that we need to we need to do because we're not, not the three of us, but the society as a whole over the last few months are, mm. I think, conflating several different things. So we're conflating all of our fears and anxieties that we've had from the last hundred years of science fiction and robot overlords and sentience. So you mentioned sentience earlier. We are no closer to making silicon chip sentient than we are to making you know, wooden chairs sentient. This is all artificial sentience. We're conflating the huge, massive, exponential changes in the way that we manipulate data with exponential change to the way that the, the fabric of society works without necessarily having gone through that process. And we're, we're also doing that thing that we do at the top of the Gartner hype cycle when we're, we're at the hype bit, which is to either 
scream dystopian future, this is all going to be terrible, or scream utopian future, it's going to solve all our problems. Whereas actually the reality is it's going to create some pretty difficult challenges. It's going to create some pretty amazing opportunities. And society as a whole, you started this uh, when you introduced yourself, Paul, saying that you were a cynical optimist. I think I agree. I'm, I would say I'm a cynical optimist. I think there are always hidden challenges and there are always problems with things that are emerging that we fail to grasp and understand. But I think on the whole, societies, people, we thrive by uh, working together. We thrive by sharing ideas and information. That's ultimately what innovation is all about. And we will rise to the challenge and adapt. It will fundamentally shift. There's no doubt about it these technologies will fundamentally shift the way that society works, but only in the same way that electricity did or the same way the internet did or uh, the creation of formalised banking systems and money did. But I don't think, I, I don't think putting it on pause for six months is going to do anything to start with. Um, I, and I think realistically, for, for the listeners of this podcast, what we've got to do is we've got to strip away the, the paranoia, the hype, the the headline sensationalism and really get to what does this mean for my organization now that the genie's out of the bottle how do i create some uh youthful processes to start really thinking what the impact is going to be and what can i now start doing to build resilience into my organization based on this cone of plausibility of change that is to come well and i'll i'll take that one level lower as well just to sort of bring it back to fundamentally why we why we do these episodes which is and i think your marcus aurelius quote was really really good which is going back to some of those fundamental building blocks of culture values leadership teamwork those are the things which will enable you to do exactly what you said of strip away the emotion and to start to turn into reality. So, and, and that was one of the reasons why I wanted to talk about the hype curve, because I think you're right. Does the hype curve represent the path for every single thing? No, but by re- recognizing there is a risk that we will say it's the most important thing in the world and potentially then it's the least important thing in the world. Frankly, you are distracting yourself from the more interesting point of here is a technology or here is a concept how do we most usefully and best apply it to what we do to better achieve our goals? And if you if you continue with those right building blocks and that right framework, the, the technology, we don't have to worry about whether the robot overlords will take over us. It becomes a much more unemotional, how do we use this in the best way possible? I challenge you on that. <laughs> good, good, challenge away. <laughs> So I would say that's lovely and that's a great business uh, hat to put on because we're on a business podcast. Um, I would say, how does that work for the last 50 years for you? Are you better off? Are you feeling more environment? Do you have less problems? You know, and that sort of thing. Because really, we're saying this thing's also some problems. But you've already had these problems before and that's the thing. You're probably going to get more problems because of what's coming and that sort of stuff. So how do you as a better business, not just become more resilient, but how do you thrive? How do you become a better business? How do you empower your people to be more innovative by proxy, not using someone else's tool, right? How do you make better content, not through a computer? How do you get your people to be more intelligent, not through a computer? 
And I think those skills plus technology, that's the sweet spot, right? TBD, that's where it comes together. And I think people are running towards this thing going, I can save a load of time. I can make a load of money. And that's not ultimately what this technology should be primarily used for. At the moment, I can't tell you the absolute tripe that I'm seeing on LinkedIn, Medium, and all these other things about people telling me how to do marketing faster. Note, I didn't use the word better just faster right no one's saying to these people do it better this thing spits out gold it's not it's just making your boring job easier how about fixing your job and not having a boring job you know or not having a boring company that's that's where my my challenge back to everyone out there listening would be yeah i i I agree with that completely and i think this comes back to we've talked about before the the relationship between culture in an organization strategy what is it you're trying to achieve? What is your vision? What is your purpose? And the connection between your strategic goal, the change you want to make in the world to the operations that you're currently doing today. And over the top of that, having the ability to be adaptive by testing, wargaming, red teaming, thinking about not just how technology is going to you know, change your organization, but how is it going to change other people, other actors in the environment's behavior? And where are the opportunities? Where are the challenges? Where do we need to do contingency planning? Where do we need to you know, do some more research, get some more information, outsource mm. you know, to some uh, consultants or to some experts to get some input? Where do we need to play about to you know, best position ourselves based on what our values are, what we want to do? as you know a, an organization in the world rather than as you say you know can i just get rid of 20 percent of my workforce and replace it with ai Woohoo! and, and, and i think and not, you're right and not just that but it's scenario planning right in my, okay yeah. so we've got a nice cute ai over here that says i do no evil well what if company b creates one that says uh we're calling it how to fuck up your competitors do you want to use us and yeah. people go i'll pay you money and I don't yeah. have to be public. I'll pay you too money. You know, that's, that's my issue is like there needs to be some rules around this. I don't want to keep, I don't want to weigh anyone down. I don't want to stop innovation. I just want to increase thinking, critical thinking and analysis. That's all. And say, but by proxy, I'm then saying like, oh, well, you should have, there should be a, a law court or something that you apply if you want your AI to go. And I'm like, that's not true creativity either. I'm not sure that I have a system in my tiny brain of like how to make it right. But I know it's a bit like porn. You know, when you see it, when it's wrong or something's going wrong and that's sort of it. And that's where I'm at, at the moment. I'm struggling to figure out, we don't need to put the genie in the bottle. That's not progress, right? And that's thing. But we do need some levels of checks and balance. That's what I'm, that's the word, checks and balances for these things. And there is, at the moment, we have law and legality, but we've seen it with Congress. We've seen it with the UK government. We've seen it governments all over. There are no technological experts that can rival who's in these private companies. And so by proxy, they're just going to run away with it. But my argument is, if we let them, that's one thing. But also, if you encourage them, that's quite another well, look, Paul, yeah. I think that's that's probably a good place for us to finish. I have a feeling we'll be back in six months, assuming our robot overlords don't, <laughs> don't farm us for electricity, maybe to talk a bit more. Paul, it's been fabulous talking to you. For, for the listeners who want to learn more about TBD or follow you on your podcast or read your books, can you just tell us exactly where they can go to learn more about you? Sure. Go to thetbd.group or paularmstrong.co.uk and you will bore yourself census. 
I highly, not true highly doubt that. that. Not exactly, true. exactly. Yeah. Well, look, Paul, thanks thank for having you me on. Much. That, well, no, it's been it's been a real pleasure, and I think I think I suspect there's more of a conversation to be had about AI. So maybe maybe we'll have you have you back another time to continue that conversation. But for now, thank you very much for joining us. Hope you enjoyed that. Um, that's all from me, Chris Kitchener, and me, Gareth Tennant. Thanks a lot. Cheerio.